The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Going Global, a business's boring pop-up series brought to you by New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. NZTE wants to help more Kiwi businesses reach their global potential. Visit getthere.nz to find out more. And now, here are your hosts, Brianne West and Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa and welcome to Going Global, a pop-up series where we meet some of Aotearoa's most successful and inspiring exporters to find out the secrets to their success and bust some myths along the way. I've been talking to exporters for the last five years on this pod, including Brianne West, my co-host, who has built Atik into a global leader in the concentrated beauty bar space, in the process diverting more than 20 million plastic bottles from being made. Brienne, kia ora, welcome. And uh, what are we doing with this series? Kia ora. Well, Aotearoa is an island a long way away, and it's not a big market. So if we want to grow, we need to sell to the world. But something interesting we have seen is that not all companies selling to the world are identifying as exporters, and that while business in Aotearoa is now looking a lot more like the face of New Zealand today, exporting is still skewing a bit more towards the traditional picture of business in New Zealand, older, more male, and more likely to be primary products. So why aren't more of these amazing, innovative, incredible businesses that New Zealand is creating, why aren't they exporting? Why don't people who are exporting think that they are? And how do we change all of this? So we are talking to some amazing entrepreneurs over the next six weeks to find out more about this. Our guest today is a really special one, Rachel Tolele who has been on all sides of exporting to the world. She was the New Zealand Trade Commissioner to LA, then came home and set up Yellow Brick Road, and then ran Kono, which is a whānau-owned series of brands like Tohu Wine and Annie's Bars that gave brand and story to great primary products. And now Rachel is running Oho, which is an agency helping businesses find and tell their unique stories with an eye to the world. Among a few other things that she does, like advising the Prime Minister, being on an APEC panel, and some really big boards. Yeah, so um, welcome to Rachel Tolele Tinakwe, and thank you for being with us to share some of these stories about what it takes to export. Thanks for being here. Kia ora kōrua. thank you for having me. We're really excited to talk to you because you've seen exporting from all sides of the spectrum. So with Cornell, it was a special kind of business. So what made it special? What, how was the structure different? What made it special, fundamentally, it was the people and the fact that we are a Māori business built on intergenerational vision and strength and resilience uh, that brought us to this point now, which is to be uh, traders or producers, I should say, first and foremost, so growers, orchardists, fishermen, farmers, and then people who can take all of that beautiful product uh, and activities that we're used to as as Māori. We've been generations and generations of fishermen and farmers, or or fisher people, I should say, and farmers and orchardists, and we've built it into a company where we have the amazing privilege of packaging those products branding them with uh, Māori imagery and imbued with our own Māori stories and taking them to the world. So what makes it different, I think, is just that real depth of story and depth of legacy that we take to the world. Yeah, and I know that you're now working with your own agency, Oho, to help other businesses kind of define and share their their own stories and, and, and what makes them special. Can, can you expand a little bit about, like, 
how you gave some of that extra meaning and um, added that value to some of those great primary products that you were doing at Kono across the world? Well, I think if, if I think about the genesis of oho, and oho means to enliven or awaken or, um, or be woke, depending on who's listening to the story or who's telling the story. But, you know, there's a story that my auntie told us about the turn of the century when the, the crown at the time was endeavouring to extinguish us as Māori. So they set about doing that physically and, and missed the mark because we're a bit stronger than they thought we might have been. So they set their sights on uh, doing that in a way that was both spiritual and cultural. And so to survive that experience Māori, because we're magic people, put parts of ourselves to sleep and then and now as we go through the sort of resurgence and revitalization of real and story and, and learning our tikanga it's not actually learning it's just bringing those parts of us uh, to life and to light and and break to life so that we can put them into play in a modern context now or spends a lot of time unearthing all of those sorts of stories with maori and non-maori because everyone has in them something that is interesting and special and unique. And oftentimes it just takes a special ear or a special voice to bring those to life. And with Kono, everything we needed in our story had always been there about the arrival of our ancestors at the top of the South Island, Te Tauihu, back in the 1820s, 1830s through to 1977 when we regained control of those lands and those resources through to now uh, where the company exports to 35 countries around the world and has, as I say, the, the privilege uh, and responsibility of telling those stories. That's incredible. And to top it all off, you were a trade commissioner at a very young age. I was. That was uh, that is not lost on me how young I was because I think about to my now 25-year-old self who was put in that position and I think, would I be putting myself there? But at the time, New Zealand Trade and Enterprise had an amazing CEO in Fran Wild and she is a real champion for people, uh, which is to say she spots a glimmer of potential in you and uh, pops you in situations where you might either sink or swim. And I'm sure she thinks that you might, that you will swim, although she's not far behind you if you didn't. So she popped me over to the States and imagined that I would uh, learn a lot, which I did, uh, but also just, just add an insight to the market and provide that pathway for New Zealand exporters up into the US. But, but I was young. I wasn't not far out of law school. So I thought that I had you know, the whole world on on check, that I knew most things there were to know. It turns out that I had a heck of a lot of learning still to go even when I got there. And it's such a cool-sounding kind of job, like uh, New Zealand Trade Commissioner. Uh, sounds awesome. What kind of stuff did you do to help Kiwi businesses get there, uh, get, get going and growing? Uh, and you were kind of uh, west coast of the States, hey, around LA. Yes, I was in LA, and, and when we did go up, and it was... I believe in 1998 was when we went up. And at the time, California was the fourth largest economy in the world. And it was my first experience where a lot of my friends had taken OEs. I got to California and stopped essentially, but that's okay because I was there for work purposes. And it, it was just a phenomenal market in which to land. Really optimistic people, very buoyant, uh, very curious about New Zealand. And so my job was to find a market and a partner for New Zealand food and beverage companies in North America. And so what I did was uh, set about creating networks. And it's interesting that latterly one of my managers said to me, there's a couple of things that make the difference in your business endeavours, what you read and who you know. And who you know is one I really latched onto. And I think being in 
California was, the, or being in the States generally, was the right place to be for that because they have a black belt in networking. If you have been in the market, you'll know just how really good they are because they understand that it is the mutual exchange of benefits. So we meet each other. New Zealanders have a tendency to want to be friends before you get to that point, but Americans are very clear that, that you know that's an exchange of professional value. And so that was a great lesson to have learned there. But I set up in the food and beverage space relationships with Whole Foods Supermarket or Trader Joe's or Bristol Farms and then laterally set up a network of chef and sommelier ambassadors. And what's interesting about New Zealanders and their ability to make relationships is that I was in Los Angeles last week and I had the opportunity to visit one of our original ambassador chefs and we were commenting on the fact that it was 20 years since we first set up that network. So that's that's what enduring relationships can do for you because other New Zealand companies over the years, dare I say decades, which is so <laughs> aging, it's tragic. <laughs> but over those last two decades, you know, they have also managed to use that as a channel to market. So it pays to form good, honest, enduring uh, relationships with people who are in market. And what kind of stories were helping these brands stand out and will get on the shelves of these places like Whole Food and stand out? I think in the beginning they were, uh, I don't want to say that it was a cliched message, but we were very much still in the clean green space. Now, obviously, everyone's world has changed in terms of how we contextualise clean and green because there are versions of, but we were very much in that uh, we're on the edge of the world we have this beautiful growing environment from which you can find your lamb or your beef or your seafood or um, eggs. Even Friends was one of our biggest uh, exporters at the time up into the North American market. But what sort of what freaked people out in the States at that time was that the eggs were on the shelf the same day they were produced in New Zealand because of the you know, <laughs> little time zone issue. So we had to deal with that one. But whether it was honey or wine, there was a real mystique about New Zealand in, in a positive way, not in a mysterious way, but I think in a reassuring way that we were a good source and a world-class producer of food and beverages that they could trust. Story is so important and it's often completely underestimated by a lot of businesses, particularly more established ones. So with your new company, how do you help them bring this out? You know, there is always stories within an organisation they may just not know it. So how do you bring this out, get them to own it and then get them to tell it to the world? Well, as you will know, there's a really uh, well-known uh, well, how would I remember? Simon Sinek, however you, however you term what Simon Sinek does, you know, he has his why, what and how. And I, and I think in the Māori sense, because this is the way that Oho is built, um, my partner Tabitha is Māori, I'm Māori, not everyone we work with is Māori, nor all of our work is Māori, but we cannot avoid thinking about things in a Māori way. It's just the way we're hardwired. And so rather than that be what, how and why, we might think of things in a, you know, what's your kaupapa? You know, really, if you took what is your why, which is a very almost most important part of the equation, why do you do what you do? Because you could do anything. We think about that more in the context of what is the kaupapa at hand? Why would you do this beyond making money, which is the obvious and immediate intention of trade? through to, you know, how will you do that? What is the tikanga that will show up in your business? And then what what are you actually offering the world? So what's the what's your koha to the world? So we think about things in a very holistic, um, creative way. You know, I think there are often times when in business we assume a very orthodox model of, of procedure because that's what we've read about and that's what we've seen other people do. But we know that 
in particular Māori businesses, are really starting to come around to the idea that there are other ways of doing things and things that are more natural to us as Māori and our storytelling and the way that we present ourselves and those very simple acts of moving away from a why, what, how to a kaupapa tikanga koha are just the ways that we bring out stories. So we spend a lot of time in wānanga with people, just really trying to draw out of them what they love, what they don't love, what they've seen, what they'd like to avoid, who are their heroes, what are the things that resonate with them, because all of the answers are usually within them and all their team. And sometimes that kopapa or why or purpose can be really big. Like in your case, Priam, with, you know, currently having diverted 20 million plastic bottles from being produced. But not every business uh, has to have a, a purpose that's as large, hey, to still capture the imagination of consumers on a, on a shelf or in a different market. Totally. And, and to be fair, by the time you reach a market, it's very hard for a consumer to discern what your why is anyway. So for me, your why and your kaupapa is really about what drives you and what has you jump out of bed every day and apply yourself to chipping that same rock in a very similar way because it's, um, as I say, there are a lot of things that you could do with your time and unless you are ultimately motivated to do, whether it is plastic bottles or whether it is um, growing grapes and making wine or um, creating an impact investment fund, there has to be a reason that motivates you. And the more authentic and the more clear that is, the easier the hard decisions become. And if you, I mean, you've found it in the end to be a door opener. Hey, Brianne, is that, and, and does that does that become a door opener for other businesses? I think so. I mean, the why you do something resonates so much stronger with your consumers, your team, extended partners, simply because you can get on board, you can resonate and understand a why. I mean, there is just products forever in a day, right? There's always something new coming out. How do you how do you make it stand out? You explain why, exactly what you're saying, how you how why you're doing what you're doing. And it just resonates and hits hits hearts much stronger. You engender greater loyalty and it's it's absolutely something I think businesses should use. But that you're absolutely right. The first thing you need to do is ensure it's something that you, as the founder or the business person or whatever, is you believe and that's what gets you out of bed. You can't fake it. Yeah. And have you found that being from New Zealand is something that means that people are, like you were just saying, Rachel, that there was already that kind of mystique around New Zealand as being a bit more clean, a bit more green. I think that kind of like still lives in the world, eh? Like, do you think coming from Aotearoa means people are more open to hear our, our whys and, and our kaupapa? I still think there's a curiosity about New Zealand. And I think that it's probably been, um, on one hand exacerbated by the last couple of years and the way that we have managed our way through COVID. And I think that we almost world round, and, and obviously there's ends of the spectrum, but by and large, we now have have this enormous social license for having been a very kind, very considerate uh, nation who really looked after their people no matter what. And so I think that it's a great time for New Zealand businesses to think about how will I capitalise on that? What will that mean to my business when I go into the world market? Because everybody knows who our Prime Minister is without fail. And so, uh, and generally speaking, as I say, that's a really popular perception I think that New Zealand story does a really great job in understanding how the world perceives us. And I think we've gone from that, you know, there's not many people down there and the ones who are there are a little bit dim to through to now, which is to say, no, there's definitely a bunch of people down there. You can use your credit card. And also (laughs) they've got this amazing industry. They build these America's Cup yachts and they have world-class technology and, uh, you know, a 
a beautiful and developing relationship with their Indigenous people. So we've come on in leaps and bounds in, in their perception. And as I say, the last couple of years have certainly aided that. Yeah, awesome. And coming up, we're going to be back very shortly to talk about some of the challenges on the road to export and get some insight into the most important things to know if you're thinking about going global. We said earlier that exporting looks a lot more like the old traditional New Zealand business. What does that mean, Brian? I mean, it's bananas that women are seriously underrepresented when it comes to export. Around 28% of our goods companies in Aotearoa are led by women. But when we look at goods exporters, that number drops to 15%. What could it do for New Zealand if all of the cool, or even just more of the cool woman-led companies in this country did get to exporting? Just imagine. New Zealand Trade and Enterprise wants to support more people to reach their global potential. So if you're a woman in business and this corridor has got you thinking about what you have to offer beyond our borders, get in touch with NZTE. To find out how they can help you get there, head to getthere.nz forward slash woman. We are here with Rachel Tolaley discussing exporting, which is something New Zealand needs more of. But in an interesting twist, not all businesses who are exporting, that is, selling things overseas, actually think of themselves as exporters. So not all of them are getting the help they could. It's a really interesting uh, conundrum. Did you always think of yourself as an exporter? Or have you come across this with people you work with, Rachel? No, I think it's such a funny thing for someone to assume that they're not an exporter when they do send products overseas because it's literally the definition of it. <laughs> and so it's hard to, you know, it's like, it's like running a marathon and being on the fence about being a runner. Um, so, you know, um, no, I haven't come across it before. Yes, I always knew the minute that you set your sights offshore and Yellow Brick Road, which was a seafood company um, that I set up when I got back from the States, initially you know, I did set it up to export. And so I knew from the get-go, albeit that I probably had a bit more grounding having been in the States for the last several years. But um, no, funny phenomenon, people not imagining that they're exporters when they export. I wonder if it's because exporter feels like this big, chunky word that you sort of have to prove your worth. I mean, I never felt like an exporter. And to be honest, prior to this discussion, really, I never thought about whether I did or didn't call myself it. Does that make sense? So I wonder if it's a, a title people don't feel they deserve. Yeah, that's funny because you're you're one of the ones, so you're probably better to answer that question than me. I was just all in. I'm exporting. Let's go. But um, you know, obviously, it is a thing. Yeah. What what percentage of atik sales happen overseas? About eighty five percent. Yeah. Wow. And well, I guess you spend a lot of time thinking about working, getting all of the administration and things that that it takes to make that happen. Thank God, I have an incredibly good operations team because I'm not a detail person, so they do all that stuff. And I guess that's probably why I've never really thought about the exporter title before. It, it just get, it just gets there. It does. <laughs> I just think about, you know, the exciting things, building the brand, saving the world from plastic bottles, all those overstated things. Ah, and, that's an, and that idea that, like, it's just, like, a big thing that you have to earn, do you think that we don't, like, spend enough time going, you know, we need more exporters? Like, is it not enough of a conversation? I think people are pretty busy thinking about their own businesses against necessarily the community of, of exporters and, and growing a critical mass as a nation because when you have your own business or you're in charge of a business that's in the export space and it takes a degree of mass and scale to, to be able to do that, you're pretty, you know, head down, bum up, to be fair. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had quite a lot of 
preconceived notions about what expert would look like. Did you, did you, is it like you thought it would be when you started exporting, I suppose? Yeah, I think, um, so hilariously when I was in the States for that time advising other people on exporting, one of the greatest uh, pieces of advice I think I gave them, <laughs> in my humble opinion, um, <laughs> is that, you know, if you really want to succeed in export, you need to be in market. You've just got to be there. You've got to live it. You've got to breathe it. You've got to be there as much as humanly possible. And then I came back to New Zealand and set up Yellow Brick Road and proceeded to do the exact opposite. <laughs> so, you know, there's that. But I thought I was a bit smarter than the average bear and I set up myself a Skype account, which had an American number, so I was tricking them, but I was really in Petoni. Um, They thought they were calling Chicago. But it didn't actually overcome the fact that you really needed to be there. And so I think there was a... A beauty in my naivety in going into my own export business, which I probably should have known a little bit better about, but I focus on the word beauty because what that does allow you to do is feel a little bit less constrained by what in fact are realities. And so you end up with a little bit more energy, a little bit more optimism, perhaps a little bit more ambition than if you really overcooked what you were about to step into. Now, there's obviously merit in doing so, and I would recommend that people do that. But I also think um, if you try to really uh, break it all down too far, it can probably drown you a little before you even you know, jump in the pool. Yeah, and in terms of being there, is that kind of like regularly visiting or is that doing really good like market scans so you kind of know what you're going into or is it making sure that you've kind of experienced uh, what it's like to be a consumer of your products in the market that you're going or is it moving over there for a while or is there a recipe or does it kind of like um, change depending on what's happening? I think it's both. I think you've got to do both. I think there are lots of people who can help you with the market scan work and they're amazing and obviously NZT is, is top of that list. But you just categorically cannot beat sitting in a cafe in your market of choice, seeing how people move and speak and what they're wearing and what are they drinking. And I guess I'm speaking of the food and beverage market, but um, Brianne, for you, it'll be a different space in those markets. But you've got to know them. And I think out of in a, in a big way, that's the most respectful way that you can treat a market. If you understand people that you wish to work with and people who you wish to invest and you as a business, then do your homework and understand who they are as a people before you leap into their space. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The last two and a half years, yes, virtual Zoom is great. It is no substitute for being there. Not only learning about your market, and I feel like I am incredibly out of touch with all of our markets at the moment. Um, I've only been back to the States in the last two and a half years. Um, I don't know what's going on, but also you've got to maintain those relationships with your partners and distributors and retailers. You've got to understand what the feedback is at the time because it changes so quickly. It's You're absolutely right. You definitely have to be there and Zoom is no substitute for it. Mm. Is, is there anything that you, you know, anything that you can really think of that you've learned that you wouldn't have learned if you hadn't gone there? Um, I'm thinking of something like I did a project for a um, compostable water bottle uh, and it was selling, wanting to sell into China. And so we went over to work out and did all this market research. And it was only while I was there going into a whole bunch of, um, you know, the equivalent of like um, 7-Elevens and saw that all of the water bottles weren't actually refrigerated, but this bottle needed to be refrigerated or it would melt. And then realised that, you know, we were over there to do market research about something else and then worked out, oh, holy heck, like this isn't going to like even be able to sit on the shelf here. 
I didn't know Americans didn't have kettles. And it might not seem like a big deal for a company to sell shampoo, but we also have a range of concentrates, which are something you make up with boiling water to melt into a liquid product. Mm. I didn't know that Americans typically heat their tea or coffee or whatever in a microwave. So all our instructions were wrong on our boxes. And that's kind of a big deal. I think my one, I had this great occasion with Cornwall where I went to China and we had an experience inside someone's home and we sat for a couple of hours and through a translator, we just had earphones on myself and um, our seafood sales manager and we sat in the lounge and had a conversation with a woman about all aspects of her home life, who cooked, who lived in the house, what did she shop for, all of these sorts of things over a couple of hours. Then we followed her to the supermarket and, um, Actually, before we went to the supermarket, what was interesting is we asked to have a look around the kitchen and in the kitchen, because our product is a frozen half-shell mussel and it's sold in one kilo boxes, and we had a look in the kitchen and the only cooking implement in the kitchen, much like not having kettles in the States, was a, a, almost a wok fry. Um, so that was the only cooking implement, which was fine for the product that we had. What wasn't fine is that her freezer was literally the size of a one kilo box of mussels. And so, you know, there's only um, mother, father, child and mother-in-law living in the house. And we were trying to have people have enough muscles for a party of 15 and and take up your entire freezer. So there was this moment where you just thought, well, no wonder that's not moving. It's too big. It's too many pieces. We need to, you know, dial it all the way down. But you don't know that until you um, crash into somebody's lounge for a couple of hours. Yeah, you wouldn't think to ask the question first, hey? How yeah. big is your freezer? Yeah. Not something I've ever asked anybody before. <laughs> nice to meet you. No. Tell me about your appliances. Yeah. <laughs> what are some of the other things you found? I don't know about you, but whenever we walk into a new market, we go there and we have lots of different discussions with various people. We try and understand what messaging will resonate. So there's a lot to a take different messaging-wise, whether it's palm-free, plastic-free, whatever, and there are different markets that like different messages. So how do you find that out for the brands you help? and therefore help them tell the story that resonates with those consumers? I think there's two parts to that, um, to that or two parts of the answer to your question, Irene. The first is that um, in the companies that I've worked in, we spent an inordinate amount of time understanding our own story first, back all the way back to that idea of story. What are the things that are most important to us? What are our values? What will define success for us? Who are we doing this on behalf of? So we try to get really clear on what is important to us because that will dictate the sorts of people that we wish to work with. And I think that shows itself quite obviously quite quickly because you need to have a fairly strong values alignment with your best partners in market. And you do that through conversation and and secondary research about the people who are up there that you wish to call, whether it's wholesalers, distributors, retailers. Um, But for instance, with with your product, I imagine it's not going to go into a 7-Eleven as an example. I'm not sure, but it might go certainly into a Whole Foods or a you know, one of the really beautiful stores off store where mm. you have a very conscious consumer. Um, and so there's that immediate values alignment, but you can't do that unless you fully understand your own first. And then you can set out into the world and look for people who look and feel and sound like you. So there's less of a distance to travel to bring you together in that respect. So I would start with you first and then look for people who resonate with you. Well, yeah, that makes perfect sense. A lot of people try and be everything to everyone and you just are nothing to any to everyone. You know, it doesn't work. And I, yeah, it's tough. And look, I think that's also very um, 
for new exporters, it's a really tough one because when you're a new exporter and, and NZT are the ones who can help you discern who are the great people for you to work with, they can line them up in a, in a really smart fashion. But when you're a new exporter, you're just pretty pumped that anyone wants to work with you. <laughs> so, so I think having that value set close at hand so you can um, kind of overcome your own excitement that somebody in the world cares um, is a good thing. So you can know that if they do, other people will as well. So you don't have to jump at the first opportunity opportunity because oftentimes that's where you get into sticky spots and you end up selling your soul to the to the wrong buyer. Yeah, because you don't know what you're doing. It is the most exciting thing in the world as a what you feel like a baby business. You yeah. know, no one knows about you based in Aotearoa and all of a sudden someone from, I don't know, Germany and says, we want to distribute your product and think, cool, what do you want? Here's my house. Here's my firstborn. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it, amazing. Have it, have it all. What else do you exactly. want? Exactly. No, I don't. It's even the same now with, oh, you know, starting a company again. I think I'm a bit of a... Um, startup junkie, but um, with Oho, you know, really amazing companies who came to us in the very first five minutes of our existence and said, could, could you do this? And I said, absolutely. And then hung up and said, like, I have literally no idea how to do that. <laughs> but, yep. but the, and, then I, and then I caught myself being, you know, a startup cliche. But it's okay because then you work it out. You've got enough stripes and scars uh, that you've built up over the last few years to work it out. And I think that's also a skill of, of exporters is that you're never going to know enough to feel wholly prepared for your endeavours. But if you wrap enough people around you who can help you solve the parts you don't know, and you need to own those as well. We just, we just don't know it all and that's okay. Um, but if you wrap enough people around you who are supportive or who have been there and done that, then most things uh, you can overcome. Yeah, I remember landing in, in Aspen and our first multi-million dollar order came through and this was at a point where we'd only just had our first sort of million dollar order and my COO and I had just landed. We sort of stared at it and thought, well, what on earth do we do now? So he went straight back home. Um, I carried on, I think I was speaking at a conference. And you're right, whilst there was an awful lot of panic in the middle, you figure it out and you surround yourself with people who are smarter than you and better at things that you're terrible at and you get through it. But how's that whole sentence, though? <laughs> how's, the, how's that whole sentence that you started that with when we landed in Aspen for our first multi-million dollar account? <laughs> oh, God, that sounds terrible. Oh, now you've said it no, out loud. It's, it's like a dick. No, no. <laughs> I do you know just the opposite. That is, like, that's the inspo there, that you that you can say a sentence like that is very permissive to others to hear so they equally can know that, you know, you, you it's, it's a reality. So that's awesome. You're absolutely right because I do, I love mentoring other people people trying to do something similar in various industries and they always say, how do you start? What do you do? You know, how on earth do you get to that stage? But it's almost like people don't realise that we, you know, everyone who got to wherever you, you know, everyone you admire started off in the position that you are thinking, how on earth do I do that? So you're right, probably should talk about those opportunities and wins more frequently. And to that idea around, um, you know, people who are asking things about how they start, as a kind of like final thought there, what advice do you have for people who might be thinking of taking the step to export uh, or might have a, you know, a product here and looking to take it overseas or might want to know more? This is um, perhaps predictable in my answer, given that I came from NZT and I'm a big fan, but I just wouldn't ever want anyone to underestimate the power of that organisation, the networks that are held internationally, the passion that those people have for New Zealand and our international success, 
their experience in market. And, and obviously that starts with the team here in New Zealand being able to sit down with companies and assess, you know, where are you at? What, what does that look like? Uh, and, it, and it reminds me of when I joined NZTE straight out of university and I was on the new exporters team and I had a, um, a mentor in the team who took me under his wing, Alan Norton, amazing man. And within the first few days of being there, uh, he said to me, right, here's the list of questions you need to ask new exporters. And I'm not joking. There were, I think, 132 questions on it. He's like, if they get through the first 20, they're good to go. (laughs) Because, and they were totally valid. And I would give my eye teeth to have that list today. Um, But that's the kind of experience. I don't suggest 132 questions is the way to go. But I think that kind of experience, because uh, invariably they are people who have been around the world, have their own businesses, understand what it takes to, to make it. Um, they would be my first port of call and, uh, you know, there's a range of ways to get in there. And I know there are rules around who, who ultimately makes that leap, but they're a phenomenal source of insight. Ah, that's so cool. Tanakwe, Rachel, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today and can't wait to see all the things that you've got cooking at Oho coming to fruition. <laughs> Me too. I just keep saying yes, Simon, and things keep <laughs> happening. <laughs> It's a rule for life. <laughs> Best way to do it. Exactly. Hey, how awesome is Rachel? And I just love the way that she approaches storytelling and purpose from a Te Ao Māori worldview. And also how she's like approaching things as someone who's helped exporters in many ways. Yeah, she was amazing. She had so many good points, but I love her her core point about having that core purpose. Because once you as a business know what you are there to do, why you are there, why you get up in the morning, you know, it, it runs throughout your whole organisation, it inspires the team, and it leads to so much more loyalty and, and growth and press and, and, and so much more good. Yeah, and there was a really interesting moment where... Um, yeah, she, she really encouraged you to be celebrating those wins that I loved. Yeah, well, as Kiwi, we're really quite reticent, you know. We are quite self-deprecating and it's funny, but it's it's not always helpful. So it is it is so important that we do celebrate those wins so that other people who want to come up and do the same thing see that it's doable, see that it's accessible and give it a nudge themselves. And with that purpose, like when I heard that you'd got a multi-million dollar order, the thing that I thought was... Well, that's so cool. There's going to be so many more products hitting the shelves that are going to be displacing plastic bottles and that are going to be better for the world. So it sounded to me like it was kind of millions of dollars more good rather than, hey, here's a big here's a big win. Yeah, I mean, it was great for everyone except Tristan who got to land, read the email, get back on a plane and go back home and figure out how on earth we were going to do it. <laughs> good on you, Tristan. Uh, that, that's really cool. Um, well, you're getting your thanks now. You're getting noticed in, in the podcast uh, for the work. That's so cool. Hey, um, so thank you. Thank you to Rachel for joining us. Thank you, Brienne. Uh, that's been so fun. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Tei Hey Butler. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts and do remember to leave us a uh, review and rate if you like what we do. Enohora. You've been listening to Going Global, brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. It was hosted by Brianne West and Simon Pound. It was produced by T.I. Hair Butler with content management by Rachel LaRue and series production by Jane Yee. Special thanks to our partnerships editorial team of Elisa Rivera, Alice Webler-Dahl and Simon Day. If you want to know how New Zealand Trade and Enterprise can help you take your business to the world, visit getthere.nz today. 
the Spin-Off Podcast Network.